Some of you are probably wondering why I take my glasses on and off so much. I can't see you with them on. I can't read with them on. And I like to see people. I really, really enjoy people. As I look at you, the amazing reality that uh, you're an eternal being just keeps washing across my heart. Uh, we're going to be alive for all of eternity. And so whatever age is or whatever our health condition is right now is not the big thing. Uh, the big thing is that we have a Redeemer who promises that we can experience eternal quality of life here and now regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in and that when he is finished with us here that we can have that eternal hope. We have a Redeemer and his name is Jesus and we gather together in his name tonight. We want to welcome those who are listening on the phone lines. I want to welcome each of you here. I want to bless you, Brother Ellis, for uh, taking a passage of Scripture that I was fine to share on tonight and sharing it in the opening. You did a very, very good job of, uh, of, of sharing that. It was just a part of what my heart was led to today. And I, did, I, I always find that refreshing. It used to be something that was like um, a fear that I had. But now I find it refreshing. It's like a confirmation. You know what I mean? And so I just want to thank you for sharing. Uh, we want to think about that. What does it mean to be planted together with Christ? Uh, tonight, I want to talk to you. I just felt late in my heart. I was, I was so refreshed by the number of children. I know a lot of them are not here tonight. But last night, there was uh, quite a little uh, troop of children stirring around this building. And I, I am so blessed when I come to churches where there's a high priority, a high value placed on children. And I think of, of the children and uh, the, the care that we must take, the, the, how precious they are to Jesus and the care that we must take in how we live and conduct ourselves around our children and shaping and molding their little hearts and their perspectives. And so as I was thinking about that, I just, I just felt a burden to share um, some refreshing thoughts that have come to my heart over the years about relationships. Because so many times we get caught up in relationships and maybe the, the struggle of relationships, whether it's in our homes or in our churches, and we don't think about the fallout of what's happening. Uh, you know, our brother talked here tonight about the fact that if you have a cup of coffee and somebody bumps it, what happens? Whatever is in there is what splashes out, right? If there's water in there, there's water that splashes out. There's coffee in there, there's coffee splashes out. But whatever's in there, you get bumped hard enough, that is what splashes out. And the same thing is true about your heart. Whatever is in your heart, when you get bumped by the circumstances of life or the people that you live with, when you get bumped, that is what splashes out. And so the disposition of our heart towards God is demonstrated in our relationships, in our homes, and in our churches. That making sense? It's really about the disposition of our heart towards God. We blame the people that bump us or the circumstances that we don't have control over, but actually it comes back to what's in the heart. And what's in the heart is a result of your disposition towards God. So God is very interested in relationships. And uh, which came first? Which relationship did he establish first? A marriage or the church? Someone tell me. I think he established marriage first. Pretty early on in his work on earth. Is that right? He established marriage first. And so we often say that is the most important aspect of, of human relationships. And... Um, I think it most clearly illustrates the work that God wants to do in the church. God is all about putting his glory on display, his work, his redemptive work. He wants to put it on display. He wants to write it across a great big billboard for all the world to see. And he begins with marriage in your home, in front of your children. He writes his redemptive work in a relationship between a husband 
and a wife. And I just want to say right at the outset here that sometimes I'm sharing in uh, settings where there are young people who are not married, maybe some who want to be married. Uh, they think maybe they got left on the shelf. And I just want to tell you that the principles that God's word has to say about marriage apply to all of us, both married and single. The, mar the principles that apply to marriage apply to the church. Because after all, there's this great mystery that we cannot figure out completely. A bright uh, student of the law like Paul could not completely figure out this whole relationship between the church and marriage because it was so clear, so intertwined. He couldn't separate it. And so I want to say to you that if you're here tonight or if you're listening here tonight and you're a single person, you're not married, this still applies to you. God's vision is that every born-again man and woman who's a part of the church of Jesus Christ are actively involved in being good Samaritans, that you have your eyes and your ears tuned to the relationships around you and that you're able to speak God's truth into those relationships. So with that in mind, let's turn to, let me ask you this, um, <clears throat> because I might have it wrong, but if you were, if you had someone come to you and say, I need some help with my relationship with my spouse, what passage of scripture would you most likely take them to? Brother Evan. Anything come to your mind? Ephesians? Very good. Thank you, brother. Brother Evan would take them to Ephesians 5, and I agree with him. That's a good place to go. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to start in Ephesians chapter 1. And here's, and here's why we're going to do this. <clears throat> so many times, I, over the years, I would take couples to Ephesians chapter 5 and just focus on Ephesians chapter 5 because Ephesians 5 talks about marriage relationships. Now, here's the interesting thing is that I don't know that you can understand how to live out Ephesians chapter 5 unless you understand how to live out Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 because 1, 2, 3, and 4 lay the foundation and Brother Ellis touched on it very, very clearly tonight, lay the foundation for how we live out Ephesians chapter 5. And so let's just take a real fast tour through Ephesians. We're going to be reading some of the same verses that Brother Nelson read to us last night. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to start reading um, in verse 4. And just let this, the word wash over you. We don't have time to go through from by verse by verse, but just a few things that we want to look for here. And the big thing is that we want to, to, to grasp as we read through this is that God wants to put his glory on display. He wants to use you as a banner to declare to the world that his grace is absolutely amazing, that his love is like nothing that you ever experienced. Uh, Paul tells us that when people come in among you and they sit among you and they witness, they just stand back there at the back wall and they, they watch your worship of God. Or they look at your marriage. They look at your love one for another. There's one thing that's supposed to grab their heart and mind. It's like, wow, God is here. There is no other explanation. It's supposed to be so out of the ordinary from what they experience in the world that they say, there is a supernatural presence and power here. It has to be so. There is no way in the world that a human being can, ex can experience relationships like this apart from a supernatural power. That is to be their testimony. They're going to confess that God is among you of a truth. And somewhere along the way, we have been migrating towards the world's way of thinking, the world's way of relating, the world's way of laying down our cross and seeking to have our own desires met to the point that, uh, sad to say, uh, we are looking a lot like the world in the way we keep the covenant of God in our marriages and in our church relationships. And so I just hope that tonight as we look at this a little bit, we can just, in a sense, feel a refreshing hope for ourselves and that God can use us, that he can equip us for the work of the ministry because there's a lot of hurting people both in the world and in our churches today as a result of losing sight 
of God's great value that he places on covenant relationships in marriage and in the church. And like I said, it's so intertwined. You can't talk about the one without having our hearts needs met and how to relate in the other. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why? Why did he predestine us? Let me just stop and say this. I believe in predestination. I believe very strongly in predestination. I believe that if you respond to the call of the gospel in your life, you're predestinated, according to Paul's teachings, you're predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And I, I like to think about salvation this way. We are, Ephesians bears this out. We don't have time to draw this out here, but there's three stages of our salvation. Uh, we are saved when we give our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved. We're justified in Christ. If we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then being saved. So you have three phases. You have saved, you have being saved, and you have saved saved, which is finally saved when you die and go home to heaven or when Jesus comes again. And so I, like it, I liken it to this, is that you're on this cruise ship. You're born on this cruise ship, and it's got everything you'd ever want. It's got the music, it's got the good food, it's got everything you want. And you're going along, and you're just having a wonderful time, the scenery's great. But then someone comes and tells you, um, very few people here are thinking about this, but this cruise ship is going to sink. It's going down in flames. Uh, if you care about the eternal welfare of your soul, you will leave this cruise ship and you're going to get in that lifeboat that's bobbing around out there in the ocean on the white caps. And you're like, yeah, right. But you have a choice to make. If you get in the lifeboat, you're, you've made a transition from that which is certain destruction to that which will be saved. Okay? Now, you have to stay in the lifeboat or you cannot be conformed to his image. And you have to stay close enough to the cruise ship that other people can get in the lifeboat. And that's the problem. We're in a world where we hear the world's music and we see all the world's partying, and it pulls at our hearts. Does it not? Sometimes, sometimes. Unless you are thoroughly convinced that that ship is going to go down in flames. Does that change the picture? Yeah. You want to stay in the, in the lifeboat if you are convinced that that boat is going to go down in flames. Now, Here's the deal. The seas are rough. You're in the wake. You're riding the wake of the cruise ship. The seas are rough. And somehow, you've got to learn how to get along with the people in the lifeboat. That is part of God's design in, in, in forming the very character of his son in your life, in your character. You've got to stay in the lifeboat, if you want to be saved at the end of the journey, you won't be saved until that lifeboat makes sure. You won't be saved, saved, but you're in a process of being saved by the work of God's Holy Spirit, by your obedience to his work, and by your relationships with the people that God brings into your life. So it doesn't matter if you're married or you're not married, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And anything you face along the way, Paul says, I am persuaded that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I am persuaded that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and will help you become conformed to the image of his son, that to which you were predestined. So that is the picture. And so God wants to use your life to paint this amazing picture of his grace. He wants to manifest the person of his son in your relationships. And tonight we want to look just primarily at marriage relationships and also applies to the church, our relationships in the church. And so we notice, uh, just rushing forward just a bit, to pick up a little time here in verse 20. Um, again, these are verses that were shared with us last night. Verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who are to believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him his own right hand in heavenly places. That is the source of our power 
that sustains us in our ride in the lifeboat. I want to just jump over into chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that, at the, that in the ages to come he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And I want to just call our attention to verse 5. There's a word there that we've talked about for the last two evenings. What is that word? What was it? Quickened. 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 To be made whole, to be made alive, to be restored. To be quickened, to be revived. That's what he's done. He's revived that dead spirit within us. And what does it say? He, he, furthermore, well, even when we were dead in sins, it was while we were in sin that he quickened us together with Christ. It was through his grace and through your faith that he did that, that he made you alive, that he gave you that desire to pursue after God. And not only that, verse 6 says, he raised you up together and made you to sit in heavenly places with Christ for the purpose, express purpose, that he might show his exceeding riches throughout all the ages to come. And this has this concept here. Okay, so let's think about it this way. If you are uh, invited to be a part of the bridal party at a wedding, um, is that how many of you have ever been part of a bridal party at a wedding? Okay, so a number of you have. That There's something special about being invited to be a part of a bridal party. It's like you're part of the inner circle. And at least in our circles, often the, the, the bridal party sits up on a uh, maybe a, an elevated area and a table together, and you have the rest of the crowd. But the focus tends to be up here. And to be included in that inner circle, to be raised up, to be included in that inner circle, you know, I, I've never heard someone who was part of a bridal party complaining about the food or complaining about the fact that they had to go to all the work to make a dress that matched the color that the bride wanted. I have never heard that. They're just excited to be a part of the inner circle, to be have thought of, to be thought of as someone who's loved and special, and, and to be presented as someone who has contributed to this cause, this exciting thing that's happening, and that this couple has come together and they've joined their lives together in Christ. And to be a part of that and to be considered as an influencer in that, someone who contributed, is, is a great honor and is seen as such. And, and what Jesus wants to do is to raise you up together with him in that way. In time, he wants you to be seen by the world and by your families as someone who is part of his inner circle, someone who is influencing the greater cause of his body, the church. And the, one of the primary ways that we will look at how we do that tonight is through our marriages. He wants to show in the ages to come the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to usward. And the apostle goes on to say that that began with the apostles and now has come down through to us. Today is our day to show to our children, to show to our neighborhoods, to show to our brotherhood the exceeding riches of God's grace in our life. So our marriage is put on God's glory. It puts God's glory on display. It reflects the character of Jesus, the character of the, the one who designed marriage itself. I want to think a little bit about the character of God, the glory of God. The glory of God is his character. It's his holiness. And if you could say one word to describe the character of God, what stands out in your mind right now? One word. Everyone together. Love. That, you know, that's just like sort of a, an, an all-encompassing word that just kind of like it grabs it all. Love. Let me give you a definition of love. I was meditating on love here a little while back. I was like, what, what, what could define uh, love um, considering the love of God? And I wrote this down. Devoting one's life and resources to the well-being of another regardless of the cost or the response. Did you get that? Devoting one's life 
and resources to another, to the well-being of another, regardless of the response, of the cost or the response. Let me try that again. Devoting one's life and resources to the well-being of another, regardless of the cost or the response. If we believe that that is a, a fairly accurate definition, although limited, of the love of God manifested to us in Christ Jesus, and I believe it is, he dedicated his life, he dedicated his resources for my well-being, regardless of the cost and regardless of my response. He died for me while I was yet in sin. I was a sinner. I wasn't even born yet when he, when he died for me. But he looked ahead and he gave his life for each one of you who are sitting here tonight. He dedicated his life and all the resources of his grace for your well-being, regardless of the cost and regardless of your response. It's available to you. It's available to me. There's been many ways that God has tried to demonstrate his faithfulness down through the years. In the Old Testament, he asked the prophet Hosea to go and marry uh, Gomer, I believe her name was. She was a harlot. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to use that marriage, that difficult relationship to demonstrate one thing to the children of Israel. The one thing he wanted to demonstrate and, and, and plaster all over their minds, the billboard of their minds was that God is faithful regardless. No exceptions. Right? Yeah, that's what he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand it in a very dramatic and real way that faithfulness, the faithfulness of God is this. I am faithful regardless. Now we bring that into the new covenant. And what God is saying that in our marriages, in our relationships in the church, the way we relate to each other as brothers, the way we relate to each other as sisters, the way we relate as husband and wife is this. I will reflect the character of God in my covenant relationships. And so if God is faithful regardless, we stand at the marriage altar and we say that we're going to be faithful what? Regardless. Is that right? Is that what we say? If you're just going to distill your marriage vows down to just two words, faithful regardless. Is that, is that about accurate? Let's just say that together. Faithful regardless. And that is how we, by being faithful to those words, we demonstrate to the world, we demonstrate to each one of our own hearts the very faithfulness of God. God wants to put that on display. Forgiveness is another one. We could go on and on with this. You think about the character of God and you say, how do I take that and how do I apply that in my relationships, in my marriage, and in my church? And you will find life. I promise you, you will find life imparted to you. The greatest part of this is that we then put God on display. We put the glory of his character on display in our relationships. Forgiveness, to cancel a debt owed to us, to wipe the slate clean. Brother Ellis talked about that tonight. God took our sins and he threw them as far as the east is from the west. So I guess he didn't need a no fishing sign, did he, brother? I like the illustration of no fishing sign. But think about how far the east is from the west. You never get there. It's just like, it's completely out of his mind. It should be completely out of our mind. Our own sins, the sins of other people when they sin against us. And so the way, how does God, how does God deal with our sins? He absorbed it in his own body. That's how he dealt with it. He paid for it himself. And so he says, here's, I'll tell you, here's how you do it in your marriage and in your, in your relationships in your church. Here's how you do it. You have two options. Uh, if there's sin involved, you go talk to them, you confront them, and you be redemptive in that confrontation. And you make sure that it happens before the sun goes down. Okay? It has to happen in the emotion of the event. That's what he's saying. Because if you don't do it before the sun goes down, something's going to happen in your heart. You're going to start thinking about it, stewing on it, some bitterness. A root of bitterness is going to start taking hope. This is for marriages, this is for church, church relationships. You take care of it before the sun goes down or 
you forgive, freely forgive. Two options, that's it. And you go to Matthew 18, and you look at the teachings of Jesus about forgiveness. He says basically this, if you understand the forgiveness that God has had towards you, here's what you will realize is that there, your bank account, your forgiveness bank account, has been infused with $150 million trillion worth of forgiveness. You can't imagine how much forgiveness is in your bank account. And if somebody sins against you, it doesn't matter if it's 490 times a day, you'll never empty that bank account. There's, there's plenty of forgiveness, plenty of forgiveness for anything that anyone can do to you, anything. If they take your life, Remember Stephen? Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Forgive them. But Jesus says this. He says, be careful. Because if you ever stop drawing from that resource that I put in your account and offering it freely to people, don't even ask you for forgiveness, here's what's going to happen. is the account will close. Because you've got to realize this. You've got to realize this. In our marriages, in our relationships, in our church, we've got to realize this. Uh, we've been forgiven sins that we're not even aware of. You don't know what all you've been forgiven. And you've got things in your life right now that he hasn't revealed to you. Maybe you can't even handle it yet, but he's forgiven you of it. As long as you're walking towards him with an humble heart, a broken and a contrite heart, you're forgiven. As long as you're extending forgiveness to those around you, you're forgiven. But you stop extending that free forgiveness to other people. And I want to tell you, I had a brother tell me one time, he said, I dare not forgive someone until they have truly felt the pain that they caused me. I said, brother, that will destroy you. That was 15 years ago, and that has destroyed that brother. He's living in deep, deep bondage. So think about anytime someone does something against you, anytime there's something comes up between a husband and a wife, you, how do you forgive? The way you've been forgiven. How have we been forgiven? Freely. Freely. And if you can't, if you can't just have a very gracious conversation when someone wrongs you, if you can't do that, you choose not to do that. You have one option, freely forgive. Just absorb it and freely forgive. Go on. And it will transform your relationships. Um, a couple of things I want to give you real quick <clears throat> just to help you. This is, this is just from my own experience in life. A young father came to me one day, actually called me and said, we've got to talk. We've got to talk. And so we made an appointment. We met. And he had this long list of grievances about his wife. And his wife wasn't doing this and she wasn't doing that. And I remember five years or so before that this couple had gotten married and he was just absolutely uh, ecstatic um, about being married and having a wife. You know, I just thought about this last night. I was talking to a young man here at the back of the room. I think his name was Lauren Barnhart. Lauren Barnhart, is that right? I don't know if he's here tonight or not. He, was, he told me he was hiding in the sound room. I don't know if Lauren's in the sound room tonight or not. But he was very excited about something like two weeks from now he's planning to get married. And he was pretty excited about that. Well, this young man was every bit as excited, maybe more excited, because he had tried uh, to start a relationship a number of times, and it just didn't work out, and it didn't work out, and it didn't work out. All of a sudden, it worked out. And he's like, yes! And five years later, he's got this long list of complaints about his wife. She's not doing this. She's not doing that. She's got a control problem. Just don't, you know, He's got this long list. And so I had to think about that a little bit. And I thought about Solomon, who in the Song of Solomon, he talks about his sweetheart. And he just like gushes on her. He dishes on her. Just oh, everything's perfect. You know, her lips are perfect. Her neck's perfect. Her face is perfect. Everything's just perfect, perfect. Her tan's perfect. Everything's perfect. And then you get to Proverbs and he says, um, a contentious woman is like, what's he say? It's like a, a drip. Continual drip on a, I, I say on a very rainy night. <laughs> and I think maybe he was talking about the same girl. You think that's possible? How does this happen? How could that be possible? I think it's possible. I, th I see it happening uh, quite frequently, actually. And I, I, uh, I just want to say that I look at my own life and I, and I realize that 
uh, I've probably been part of the problem. You know, I remember at youth meetings already, and I, I did, this, didn't initiate this, but I remember at youth meetings already where the moderators would take the girls and give them a sheet of paper. And they say, okay, you write down all the qualifications that you want in a husband, and they give the guys a sheet of paper, and you write down all the qualifications that you want in a wife, and they come up with 15, 20, 25, 30 qualifications they were looking for in a wife, and then they would get up front and they'd read them up. And the idea was is that the men would be motivated to be all that the girls were looking for, and the girls were motivated to be all that young men were looking for. And guess what we create when we do things like that? We create all these expectations. Yeah, we do. And I want to tell you that most young men and most young women, when they walk up the aisle to get married, they have a lot of expectations. And I think one of the responsibilities in Church of Jesus Christ is that we help them understand something. We need to help them understand what Brother Ellis talked to us about tonight. You're not ready to walk up that aisle until you at least, at least mentally have and spiritually have a grip on this concept of being complete in Christ. And so what we do is, I used to hand people books. They would come to me and they'd say, you know, we're going through some struggles, and you hand them a book. Well, you hand them a book called Five Love Languages. Here, go read this and obey it, and everything will be okay. And so they go home and they read Five Love Languages, and after a while the wife says, well, he knows my love language, and he still doesn't do what it says he should do. And what do you, you know, where's her life at in that? There ain't no life in that. Just more expectations. You know, these books... Why is it that we turn away from the living word of God and we turn to man's writings and we expect it's going to bring healing when Jesus said that his word is what's going to heal our hearts? You find your completeness in me and then you're free to love each other the way God wants you to love each other. And so then there's 10 secrets to endless bliss in your marriage. And you have, you have enough books on marriage that you can fill this auditorium up. And I want to tell you something. I'm not saying that there isn't some good that could be learned from some of those things. I'm not saying that. But here's what I'm saying. Is that unless you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, those books are dangerous. Because they will help you to build expectations of other people meeting your needs. And there's only one person that can meet your needs. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to be complete in him. And when we understand that, when we pursue that, then we start finding life. And so I said to this young father, I said, look, here's the deal. The scripture says that you are to live joyfully with the wife of your youth all the days of your life. For that is your what? It's your lot and your portion. This is it. Now here's what the deal is. It's never going to change. She is who she is. And the minute you stop trying to change her with your expectations and you start focusing on the fact that Jesus has met your expectations, there's something going to happen. What's going to happen? You're going to get your song back. He lost his song. He lost his joy. So getting your wife to meet your expectations is not the goal here. Getting your song back through walking with the Lord Jesus Christ is the goal. And we're running out of time here, but I just want to say that we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we find that it's all about learning to live with a song in our hearts. Learning to live in the joy of our salvation. I think in Virginia, they did you have a, a supercharged battery in that clock, Brother Evan? Colossians 2, let's just go there again. Our brother had us there, I just want to point something out here real quick. In Colossians chapter 2, Colossians, thank you, brother. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, buried, and we're going to just drop in here at verse 12. And a brother already read this, but we're going to get it again. Okay, it talks in verse 11 about being circumcised with a circumcision that's not made with, with, with hands. In other words, this is a spirit work in your in your. This is a spirit work in your heart that is a result of your commitment to be a bearer of the cross, to embrace your cross in life. Which it, what is the cross? Your cross is your absolute commitment to be faithful in following Jesus, no matter what the cost. That's your cross. 
That's what it means to take up your cross, is I will follow Jesus. I will live for Jesus. I will follow him wherever he leads me, no matter what the cost. Okay? So the Spirit does a work of cleansing your heart, cutting off the flesh. In verse uh, 14, I'm sorry, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith and the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and and uncircumcision, of your flesh, hath he what? Anyone following me? What's that next word? Quicken. Quicken. That's been our word for the last three days here. Quicken. Made alive. Okay? So you were following your own flesh. He made you alive with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now we go to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. There's just something here that I think is so important for us. With that as a background, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to jump forward to verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And I remember when a young lady came to me, she was married and she was going through some struggles. And she says, my husband doesn't understand this verse. Right there. That verse right there. He thinks I have to do the submitting. He don't understand that he has to do the submitting too. That's talking about mutual submission. That means that sometimes he submits, sometimes I submit. And I was happy to tell her that God is not the author of confusion. That's not what that verse means. So what does that verse mean? It goes right back to Romans chapter 8. It goes right forward to Colossians chapter 2. What does it mean to be planted together with Christ? And if you study those verses, here's what it means. As I understand it, my limited ability. So you go out into the field and you plant two kernels of wheat in the field together at the same time. And it grows up together. That's the language that Paul is using. Okay, so... Every time a, a person becomes a Christian, they dedicate their heart and life to Jesus. It's like they are planted together with him, and he grows up with you. He is that. He, he, it's like you grow up together. He's not like this big towering plant that's looking down at you, but he meets you where you're at, and he nourishes you and grows up with you. It's like a crop that is planted at the same time, and it's growing together at the same pace. He keeps pace with you through his Holy Spirit. He keeps pace with you. He doesn't criticize you because you're not as tall as, as him. He's right there with you at your level, at your level of maturity is where he meets you. And that's what Paul's trying to say. You're planted together with him. Your baptism into the church is indicative of this fact that I died to myself. I died with Christ just as he died to himself so that I can grow up in him, with him. And he very gently brings me along at his pace, his Holy Spirit doing the work. And me learning to rest and be amazed at him. That's how it happens. So that's the picture we have. Now, we come to Ephesians chapter 5, and how do we apply it here? Well, here is the deal. Is that when you have a man and a woman who are coming up front to the altar, you have two bodies, right? But they're called to be, they're two individuals. Different gifts, different personalities. But they're called to be one in spirit and soul. Mind, will, and emotions, and in their spirit they become one. And so we take, uh, in Christ, we take a stick and we poke a hole in the ground and we put two seeds in one hole, if you will, and they grow up together. It's a process. And it takes time for them to grow up together and to become one in spirit and in soul, mind, will, and emotions. They become one. And you look at that, I look at some of you uh, couples here that, I've had a chance to observe in the last two days. And I'll tell you something, I can see a resemblance. You know that? You watch someone who's been together a long time. And just like those who've been walking with Jesus a long time, you see a resemblance of Jesus in them. You take knowledge of them that they've been with Jesus. I can't think of Judith without thinking of Abner. I think of Abner without thinking of Judas, Judith. And I don't know how long they've been married. But, you know, it just becomes that way after a while. It's like they're, they're, they're even in our minds are just one. And that's the picture here. So the oneness, the unity is Jesus, okay? He's the standard. He's the source. And it's two hearts, two souls, two spirits submitting to that standard. It's not about the wife submitting sometimes to the husband, husband sometimes submitting to the wife. It's about both of them committed to this one thing, that they're going to be one in spirit, in mind, will, and emotions, and then they're going to grow up around the oneness that he is. They're going to become one with him. That threefold cord that is illustrated so perfectly in Scripture. All right, we need to move on. Here's, here's the other thing that I want to just quickly point out. 
is that it is in that oneness, it is that completeness that we find in Jesus that our brother Ellis read to us about, where we recognize that we are complete in Christ and we release each other of expectations. In fact, we know that we're human, we're but dust. He knows our frame, he knows that we're but dust, and he has great grace with us. And in our relationships, in our marriage, we need to recognize this, we're but dust, and we're frail at best. And so we exercise, we live together according to that knowledge with great grace towards one another. And he says in verse 22 through 24 that the wife is supposed to submit herself to her husband. And I just want to say very quickly that that is our sister's primary struggle, okay? And I don't want you to ever, ever feel like you're somehow inferior because you struggle with submission, all right? Men have their primary struggle too. But the primary struggle that you sisters will always face, and some of you more than others, depending on your personality, is this thing of submission. Surrender. You're going to have to work at it. You have to be very, very committed to this. You have to understand that in the very beginning, when sin happened and man lost his part, his part portion of being a part of God's divine nature, that's the part of him that died in the garden, When the Lord offered redemption to mankind, he said to Eve, he said, Eve, here's the problem. You're going to want to rule over your husband, but here's the deal. I've ordained him to rule over you. I've given him the the responsibility of providing leadership in the home. You come in under that, and there will be peace. There will be a blessing in your home. And I want to say something to you, sisters. Uh, Your husband can't bring you to submission, and he shouldn't even try. It's not his job. Here's where there is an absolute parallel between the way Christ works with us, the way he works in the church, and the way we as husbands love our wives. We have to understand this. Christ never forces the church to submission. He invites them. Never forces them. Never, ever. This isn't about us trying to change each other. This is about us changing. uh, This is about a husband and a wife standing in awe of the one who can change us into his own image. A husband should never try to call his wife into submission. He himself, and this is what Scripture says, lives with this deep reality, this deep, deep reality, that he is under submission to Christ. That's his responsibility. And that's where his struggle is, is staying under Christ, to keeping Christ number one in his life, to communicating in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I I hope that is somewhat helpful I just want to say this, that in my own experience, <clears throat> um, the young man who, who had this list of expectations of his wife, when I led him to the scriptures and said, okay, here's the deal. Here's what the gospel says. Here's what the word of God says. Uh, I know how you're feeling, but this is what the word of God says. If you walk with Jesus and regain your song, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. If you quit trying to force your wife to submit, to respect and honor you, Guess what? Good things are going to happen in your home. There's going to be an atmosphere of grace there. You know, the wife wife sets the atmosphere of submission in the home and in the church. Seriously. It's very important. Jesus notices. The husband is responsible to set forth the glory of God's character in the way he leads the home, the way he communicates to his wife, the way he communicates to his children. Very, very, very important that we do that. That young man, I talked to him. I don't know how long it was later. It might have been six, eight months. I said, hey, how you doing? Hey, he said, it works. It works. The gospel works. He had a song back. And their home was a place of peace and quietness again. And there's, I could give you, I could give you example after example just three weeks ago. I had a couple I never met in my life. They called and said, hey, can we sit down and talk? I said, sure, come on over. They drove the whole way to our place, sat down, and for I don't know how long, hour and a half, I sat there and I listened to the husband talk about all the disappointments he had with his wife, all the failed expectations that he was experiencing, the frustrations in his life. And I got the idea that she was a brainless idiot listening to him. There would have been a day when I would have taken a piece of paper ripped it in half and given to each of them because this is what I was taught to do and said, tell me what you want out of your marriage. 
You write down, Mrs., what you want. You write down, Mr., what you want out of their marriage. And then we would spend five or six sessions together trying to conform their lives to the other person's expectations. You want to know something? It never worked. It never brought life. And I said to that man, I said, okay, I've heard everything you said. Let me ask you one question. What's your relationship like with Jesus? He looked at me and said, on the rocks? I said, do you have a desire to change that? He made it very clear that his purpose of being there was for me to help his wife change. And I said, I just want you to understand something. The only way anything will change in your marriage is if each of you purpose with a deep, deep commitment that you will be faithful regardless to your commitment to follow Jesus. So anything is going to change you. And when you have purpose in your heart, when you become sick and tired of the stress, the anger, the punching holes in the walls, and you want to get right with Jesus, I'm here for you. So come back then. When we share the gospel the way Jesus shared it, we save ourselves an incredible amount of wasted time. Because when men are not at the end of the rope and they're not ready for Jesus to change their heart attitude, when they're not broken, you're just wasting your time. You're trying to conform hard hearts and you can burn up your energy and you can deprive your family of much needed time and energy for them trying to help hard hearts become soft and only Jesus can soften hard hearts when they turn to him and he's promised to do that. I could give you many, many other testimonies. I'm going to skip that. I want to um, just share with you a story to illustrate something. I grew up in a home where we had a lot of hardship. We were as poor as church mice certain uh, periods of our experience and there was a lot of tension in our home as a result of the financial struggles that we had in fact that we didn't even always have food to eat as a family and eventually we were put out to other homes and so I spent time going from this home to that home I think I spent time in five different homes uh, over a period of years and had a lot of emotional baggage as a result of that the, just the fear of abandonment never knew what was happening in our life would our family ever be put back together again and uh, so I got married as a very, very um, immature um, person with a lot of baggage from my growing up. And no, nobody's fault but my own. But it was fear of abandonment. There was just a deep need for affirmation in my life. And I just want to um, bless my wife for her grace and her patience with me as the Lord did a work in my heart and life. But there was a time when I, I just wanted her to respect and appreciate me and obey me. I thought it was my responsibility to make sure that she was submissive to her husband. Because after all, that's what God's word says. I'm the leader of the home. i got to make sure my wife knows that she's supposed to be submissive to me. And I missed out on so much until I understood my call to follow Jesus and to love my wife regardless of her response to my love to love her unconditionally, to give everything I am to her. And just to give you an illustration, a couple years ago, maybe there's a little bit of humor in this too, but a couple years ago, um, <clears throat> I was watering cattle. Um, it was wintertime, it was cold. We had a problem with a well pump. And so for a couple days, I took our F-350 with a 250 or 275 gallon you know, one of those uh, totes like you have, Evan, on the back of your truck right now, okay? So I took it up to our house. I pull into our garage. I put the water hose in it, fill it up, run it down, empty it out into the cattle trough to give them water. And so I was doing this for, I don't know, three or four days. And one day they needed that truck for something else. And so I grabbed the 450, which is a flatbed. And so the bed sits a little higher, okay? And I strapped this thing on there. Never even thought about it. I pulled into our garage. And just as soon as the back wheels came up on that little lip, I heard this crunch, and I jammed on the brakes, and that lid on that tote crunched right up into the door header of the garage door and just shattered that little plastic seal that the door seal's against. 
And so my truck is kind of like squatting underneath this weight, just crunched there. And I jumped out. I didn't have time for this in my schedule. I jumped out, and I looked at this, and I just couldn't believe how stupid I was. How could you do something so dumb? And I looked at this thing, and I'm like, there's got to be a quick way to get this thing back out from under here without busting up my garage door fascia and everything. And so I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, the fastest way to do this is to take the air out of the tires. But then i got to go get an air compressor. And I don't have time for that. There's got to be a better way. And I'm looking at this thing, and I jumped up on the hitch and bounced a little bit, and it almost seemed like if I had a little more weight, I could get this thing out from under there. And so this thought crossed my mind. I need to get my wife and my daughter to come out and sit on the truck. But I, I knew I had to be careful how I presented this to her. <laughs> I didn't th- want her to think I was insinuating something. And so I went and said, honey, quick, I need help. Like, right now, I messed up. I need you and Andrea to come out here as quick as possible and, get, and sit on the back of the truck. And she's working in the kitchen. And she just keeps on doing what she's doing, making food, fixing food. I said, honey, did you hear what I said? She said, yeah. She said, what are you trying to say? I said, well, i got a problem out here. My truck's stuck underneath the, the door. i got to get it out. i got to get this water down to these cattle. She said, so what do you want? I said, I need weight on the truck. You know, weight on the truck. Just, just come out and sit on the truck. She said, honey, if you want weight on the truck, why don't you just fill it up with water? <laughs> fill it up with water. She said, you're going to do that anyway, aren't you? I said, yeah. She said, just fill up water. You have all the weight you want. You have more weight than my, my daughter, than what Andrea and I will create. I said, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I share that to say this, that there was a time when I would have been thoroughly frustrated with the fact that she wouldn't just simply come and obey me. Just do what I ask her. And in that period of my life, I realized I missed out on so much wisdom. God has given our sisters amazing wisdom. And so many times, we just kind of like ignore it. We're indifferent to it. We got our agenda. We're just running full speed ahead. And we don't stop and just appreciate. And so when, you know, I used to say to my wife, do you love me? I'm talking about 30 years ago. I'd say, do you love me? Because I she'd act like, you know, a little bit cold toward me a little bit. I said, do you love me? And I was scared about what she would say. She said, well, I guess. I said, well, you married me. Yeah. I didn't know everything back then. What does that mean? If you knew everything, you wouldn't have married me? And, she, you know, she just like, I wanted her to gush over me, like, nah, you're the greatest thing ever happened in my life. You're so handsome. You know, I wanted her to say something that made me feel valued, appreciated. I was fishing for affirmation. I was fishing for what my heart was longing for. I wanted her to say, you know, you're just so amazing. And it didn't come. She was, she was wise. Because that drove me to look for affirmation in Christ. And when I found affirmation in Christ, I quit asking her those goofy questions. It's obvious she loves me. If you would know the work she goes to for me, it's absolutely amazing. I know she loves me. There's no question about it. The same thing is true. You spend time with Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. You spend time walking with Jesus. You spend time getting to know Jesus. You spend time focusing on what Jesus has done for you, the abundance of his grace in your life, and you will become absolutely convinced that he loves you beyond anything that you can imagine. All your needs will be met. And when you start doing marriage, you start doing covenant relationships in the body of Christ from the basis of having all your needs met, man, life gets so good. It gets so amazing. No matter what you face, in the middle of the trials of life, you find grace to be an overcomer. And it's absolutely amazing. Had a, um, a brother that came to our um, little church fellowship there in West Virginia. 85-year-old brother who's been a, a tremendous blessing in my life over the years. 85 years old. Been a spiritual father to me. He came from Lancaster County, he and his wife. And he came down there and he stood up and shared a testimony. And he said this. He said, you know, 
God has blessed me in so many ways. We faced a lot of challenges in life. He said, God has been good. He said, there was always uh, things out in front to look forward to. Always something to look forward to. You know, you look forward to marriage when you're a young person. If God calls you to that, you look forward to serving him in the mission field. If he calls you to that, you look forward to a family. You look forward to your children growing up. You look forward to them marrying. You look forward to grandchildren. He said, you know, there's only one thing. He said, it's like right in front of me right now is eternity. Right now. And he said, I want to spend whatever days I have left speaking words of grace and encouragement to my wife, to my children, to my grandchildren. He says, my one desire. He says, there's only one thing yet that I dread, that I don't look forward to, and that's saying goodbye. And I don't know, some reason, even when I was a young person, uh, before I was married, before even knew Sharon, I had this, this awareness that in relationships, one of the deepest pains of relationships is the saying goodbye. And yet God wants us to live, so live in the reality that whether it's in our church relationships or in our marriages, marriage being the, the closest human relationship possible, he wants us to so live that when we say goodbye, that we can do it with grace. And that when we do it, that there's this memory of sweet fellowship with Jesus throughout our time together. We're writing the scroll. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. We're writing a life story. And many times we forget that our lives are an open book before people, before our children. They're reading our life story right now. They're reading. And we want that life story to line up perfectly with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day, the books are going to be opened. And his version of our life is going to be read to us. So we want to live carefully, don't we? When I was a boy at about 16 years old, I opened up the family life one day, and there was this poem in there that just reminds me of these things. And sometimes my wife and I quote it to each other. I might try to say it here real quick. I can't believe the time. I'm sorry, brothers. Forgive me. Please, can you forgive me? I'm going to say this poem yet if I can remember, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get you out of here. I'm really sorry. I, I didn't realize how quickly that thing goes. It must be plugged into 220, maybe. I, I read this thing when I was 16 years old, and it touched my heart. My wife and I have learned it together, and I'm just going to try to say it here real quick tonight. But it goes something like this, and I love it because it reminds me of the fact that someday there's going to be a party. And I try to live in the light of that. And the only way you can do that is if your needs are met in Christ. It goes like this. Should you go first? And I remain to walk the road alone. I'll live in memory's garden, dear of happy days we've known. In spring, I'll watch the roses red when fades the lilac blue. In early fall, when brown leaves call, I'll catch a glimpse of you. Should you go first, and I remain for battles to be fought, each thing you touched along the way will be a hallowed spot. I'll hear your voice. I'll see your smile, that blindly you, I may grope. The memory of your helping hand will bring me on with hope. Should you go first, and I remain to finish with the scroll, no lengthening shadow shall creep in to make this life seem droll. We've known so much of happiness. We've had our cups of joy. And memory is one gift of God that death cannot destroy. Should you go first, and I remain. One thing I'd have you do. Walk slowly down that long, lone road. For soon I'll follow you. I want to know each step you take that I may walk the same. For someday, down that long, lone road, you'll hear me call your name. We stand together for prayer. Father, we stand here as just a, a small congregation in the presence here tonight. We seek your blessing. We seek your blessing, Father, that you might open up our eyes to the amazing covenant relationships that you've called us 
to live out in our marriages and in our, in our brotherhoods. Father, not for our sakes, not that life might be good, that we might have a flowery bed to walk through life on, but Father, that we might demonstrate the amazing power of your grace that has come to us through Jesus. Father, help us to grasp that great reality that we are complete in him. Every need that we have in our lives is fully and completely met in him. Quicken our hearts tonight. Revive us. Make us people that are whole in Christ. That in our relationships, whether they are extremely difficult, or relationships that have been smoothed out by the tribulations of life, I just pray, Father, that in our relationships, we might give a very clear message that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, that we've been planted together with him, and he has been our source of life. Father, we want to honor you. We want to bless you. And we just pray that you would stir our hearts with the truth that you've given to us. Help us to be able to look into each other's eyes with clearness because you've done a work in our hearts and to profess our love for you and our love one for another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.